0: The Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Stuart Pym is the founder and president of Saving Nature and the Doris Duke Professor of Conservation at Duke University. His books include The Balance of Nature and, in 2001, the acclaimed World According to Pym, A Scientist Audits the Earth. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the recipient of the 2006 Heineken Prize for Environmental Sciences from the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the winner of the Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement in 2010. And this year, Stewart was awarded the 2019 International Cosmos Prize, which is widely viewed as one of the most prestigious honors presented in the environmental field. The honor recognizes Pim's groundbreaking research on endangered species, as well as his work to promote practical approaches to help slow or reverse species declines by protecting and restoring shrinking habitats. I asked Stuart to begin today by talking about his recent article for rewilding.org on the Amazon fires. The trip from
1: the United States to Brazil is usually overnight, but there's just one or two flights that go in the daytime. Um, and you know you head southeast out over out, out over Florida, and then you cross the Caribbean, um, and then you get to South America. And the first couple of hours, as you go across, you know, southern Venezuela and northern Brazil, um, is you know it can be magical. It's still one of the last wild places on Earth. Um, there's great rivers there's huge tepuis these strange uh, mountain platforms that rise up out of uh, out of the lowlands um and you go on like that seeing very few signs of uh, of uh, of human domination until you get to Manaus on the Amazon which is a big ugly city um and then you've got a little bit more of the Amazon as you go south of Manaus but then you get to you know to this site of immense destruction. You see so much of the rainforest going up in smoke. You see these huge plumes of smoke that rise up to the to the height of the uh, of the plane. Um, and this year is particularly bad because of of the new policies of President Jair Bolsonaro. Um, and so I was motivated to write something about that, um, because I think it's something people need to understand and understand the consequences of it.
0: Yeah. In and in every year there's, there's a fire season there for a reason. They call it fire season, but it's just so much worse this year. It, it is. Um, this
1: is very much the burning season. It's the dry season. So the forest is, is more flammable. And You know, the reason that I felt motivated to write something um, was his sort of denial of of the scientific facts. Um, And the reality is that we are now so much better informed about what's going on to our planet. We've got really good remote sensing. Many nations of the world have got satellites up there, we Americans do, uh, Europeans do, the Chinese do, the Indians do, um, and so we really know what's going on. And fires are really pretty simple to detect from uh, from space. They, they quite literally glow in the dark. I mean, they glow even brighter in the infrared. Um, so we can count the fires and we know exactly where they are. Um, and, and, and so, we, of course, we know that there's a lot more fires now than this time last year and, and certainly before Bolsonaro took office.
0: The head of the space agency um, in Brazil reporting and sort of giving it away. Here's our map. Here's what we see in fires. And this is from our own Brazilian <laughs> data. And yeah. the guy got sacked. Right away, and I know other people who do that there are a lot of leaders around the world Hi. now who just just get rid of the people who uh, are not towing the line and it kind of was an omission of guilt right there to me I, I I
1: agree and I think it's you know I think it's very worrying because um, there used to be a time when you might have politicians with whom you disagreed but they, I think, understood that you know that there are there's facts out there. There is there is a consensus on what on, on what's truthful about the news. What what are the things we know? What are the things we don't know? Um, and that notion that uh, you know, as it were, you know, you watch the nightly news and Walter Cronkite tells you the way it is. That's gone. Mm. Um, And we've gone to nightly news that you pick which view of the world you want. And that was bad. But the notion that somehow that the scientific facts are up for grabs too is deeply concerning. I mean, global climate disruption, global heating, you know, is not a political statement. It's a set of very well-documented scientific facts. And when we burn the Amazon, we know in exquisite detail how many fires, where they are, how they burn, uh, how long they burn for. All of that information is not something that is there for political spin. Um, And shame on politicians to think that they can, you know, they can say that the earth is flat or whatever just because that matches their uh, their constituents, you know, prior beliefs. Interestingly, there's been items on the news that say that there are purifiers now than than in the past, and that's true too. Um, but again, you can go to readily available satellite data, stuff that anybody can download from the web, and see that a lot of the changes have to do with changes in Africa. And those changes, too, are are alarming. There is a huge swath of Africa stretching from from sea to shining sea, from Dakar to Mogadishu, all the way uh, 4,000 miles from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. And that area of dry savannas is burning less than in the past. And that's because more people are moving into those areas to try and eke out um, a a, a miserable subsistence of agriculture in areas that are really too dry for crops. Um, And that's suppressing the fires because the fires were set by graziers who wanted better grazing for their animals. But it hardly represents an improvement of people's lives. And all the way across um, that region from Um, through Niger and Nigeria, across to the Central African Republic, to South Sudan, uh, to Somalia and northern Kenya, all of those places we hear tales of appalling brutality and massacres uh, as people clash over, uh, over exploiting very, very poor land. So there may be fewer
0: fires, but it doesn't mean that people are living better lives. Far from it. Boy, is everything tied to everything else. And gathering that information, you know, it's not education to say that there are fewer fires. It's education to say what you said, to come to the realization and do your due diligence to find out why that isn't a good thing.
1: I think that's. I think that's very, very serious that that people take on whatever nonsense is spewed out by whichever a new source that they want without without ever checking. Um, and and while you can't stop people from being stupid, um, you can, I think, have a must hold politicians accountable. Um, politicians are going to make decisions that we don't like. Um, but on the other hand, we expect politicians to 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 weigh the various alternatives with the best um, scientific evidence that they have at their disposal, and the notion that they can dismiss uh, the fact that species are going extinct, the fact that the climate is warming, um, all these other things, um, suggests a, a reckless incompetence that we simply cannot uh, cannot tolerate. Make, tough decisions, certainly, uh, but but ignore the facts, uh, and we do so at our peril. And, you know, I can't help but think that this happened. I mean, I wrote that piece at a time when an enormous hurricane was killing what I'm afraid is going to be an enormous number of people in, in the Bahamas where it was plowing into into the coastal areas of North Carolina. You know, are big, powerful hurricanes becoming becoming more common? Yes. Are they moving more slowly? Yes. Um, there's a lot of that kind of thing going on, and if our politicians ignore it, the insurance companies are not, because they know they have to get the facts right or go out of business. A lot of people are going to be economically harmed, if not devastated, by uh, our ignoring what's happening to our climate.
0: Another thing that seems to have taken place, you mentioned Walter Cronkite in an era when we trusted science and uh, we got our news from far more reliable sources. Though they made mistakes, it was nothing you know, intentional. And it seems more intentional these days. It's not a mistake. They just spread misinformation sometimes, or all the time, Indeed, depending on the channel you're watching. But the other thing is that I think politicians are learning that if you want to be very bold and do stuff like Bolsonaro is doing, like Trump is doing, um, they're not getting in trouble for much of anything because another, a hurricane is coming, or another disaster, or another distraction. And we're already um, not talking about the Amazon or much about Africa, the fires uh, on social media. It's, um, it's gone. The hurricane blew in and then wiped the Amazon issue, the fire stuff right off of social media. And, and people haven't gone back to it either, though the hurricane is still a developing issue because we're dealing with the aftermath the news cycle doesn't have time to circle back to anything. And what the effect is, and I'm afraid that these guys know it, I'm afraid the politicians know that everything is so chaotic. And if you keep throwing things at people, they'll never be able to nail you down for any one really big problem that you create. Uh, Well, they may have, but I think we have to learn that we have to
1: uh, we have to hold their feet to the fire, as it were, um, and, and make sure that we, we engage them on the, on, the, on the issues that matter. I mean, what we've been talking about so far has been unrelentingly depressing, and, and for good reason. It is unrelentingly depressing. On the other hand, the, you know, there are so many things that we can do um, that, that I wouldn't want people to go away with a message that it's, it's too late to do anything. You know, let's let's talk about what we as individuals can do and what difference we can make, because I think that's a story that needs to be told. And that's a story that isn't being told anywhere near effectively enough.
0: Your organization, Saving Nature, and um, everyone can find that at savingnature.com. Uh, tell us, give us a little bit of background on it. And let's talk about those solutions that your organization is involved with. Well, savingnature.com was was formed this July,
1: but it came out of um, 12 years of of working with an organization called Saving Species, which I founded um, 12 years ago with with money I got from the, the Royal Netherlands Academy of Arts and Sciences. There's no there's no Nobel in in the environmental field, but uh, that Nobels are given by the Royal Swedish Academy. Uh, but the uh, the Royal Netherlands Academy gives a wonderful prize out to to people doing uh, environmental studies, and I was enormously honoured to get it in 2006. And in 2006, I founded an organisation um, devoted to helping conservation groups in in species-rich countries, places like Colombia and Ecuador and Brazil and, and India and Sumatra. And uh, it was driven by, by science. The science of conservation tells us that there are special parts of the world that, that hold exceptional numbers of species at risk of extinction. And um, those places that I've just mentioned are some of them. And people can see that by going to a wonderful website created by the, the, the Vice President of Saving Nature, uh, Professor Clinton Jenkins. Um, and it's a biodiver- biodiversitymapping.org, www.biodiversitymapping.org. And what Clinton has done, and, and I've been part of this, is to try and map out the places that really matter. Um, within the United States, the, the southeastern United States, for example, is is an area that has large numbers of species that are not found anywhere else. When we go to those places, I mean, when I'm flying across the Amazon, I'm heading to southeastern Brazil. and When I get there, I see a landscape that's massively fragmented. The only forest that remains is in small pieces, in fragments, in tatters. And what we know from studying what happens to species in fragments is that species drop out of fragments over time. There's local extinction. And there's local extinctions for reasons we understand uh, very well. If you have, you know, a small fragment nearby that has two males in it, and you have a fragment a little bit further off that has two females in it, you do not need a PhD in biology to know that you are not going to get any babies. What we can do is to reconnect fragments, to reforest landscapes, so that we restore the the connectivity between once isolated areas of habitat. uh, Our motto is CPR for Earth, connect, protect, restore. And by reconnecting landscapes, we can make a huge amount of difference to species.
0: So what does that look like on the ground? How how hard, what are the challenges that you have to doing that? What kinds of um, alliances do you need to make in order to uh, make one of these CPR projects go?
1: Well, the first thing we do is, is we identify the kinds of places where we want to work. Um, coastal Brazil is, is a good example. And we then identify the landscapes that we would like to connect, reconnect. And in doing that, we often find that there are wonderful, fantastically enthusiastic, passionate local conservation groups that, that not anywhere near enough people have heard about. Um, and our mission is to raise money for them so that they can acquire land and, and reforest it. And that's what we started doing a dozen years ago in coastal Brazil. We, we, we saw a piece of land that was a cattle pasture. I mean, just wretched pasture. The cattle were starving on this pasture. It's not very, very good grazing. And we thought, we've got to buy that piece of land. And the reason we thought that is that that cattle pasture isolated a an area of about 5,000 acres that was a nature reserve the union biological reserve and because that nature reserve was isolated we knew that species within it would eventually you know drop out that that they would be these kind of accidents where you you get you know all individuals of one sex or, or or you know by chance Too many individuals of a species die and the population isn't viable. A whole variety of processes that that befall tiny populations. Um, So we knew the solution was to buy this cattle pasture, reforest it, um, and connect that nature reserve, that isolated nature reserve, to forest elsewhere. It turns out that forest was uphill which meant that we knew with global climate disruption that the species would be able to to move upslope to cooler climates. Um, and so we, you know, we get sort of, you know, we, we achieve three goals, probably four goals. First of all, um, I shouldn't forget that we provide um, income for the local community because um, they, they, uh, they collect seeds and, and have nurseries for the trees that, that we plant. Um, we are allowing species to be rescued because they're no longer in these isolated fragments. We are allowing them to, to, um, uh, to disperse. We are allowing them to move uphill, upslope, which is vital for addressing the issue of climate change. And, and we're also planting trees, which soaks up, um, you know, soaks up carbon out of the atmosphere. So we felt that this idea of, of, of CPR of connect, protect, restore uh, was just a you know a win-win-win-win solution uh, for taking care of biodiversity and and doing what we can to mitigate against climate disruption.
0: What does a piece of moonscape that's already been decimated by cows, the the way that you've described, is is that expensive land? Is that is it something that would be easy to acquire.
1: The, the tragedy is that, that much of the land that we buy is really cheap land. It isn't really good for much. It really can grow carbon uh, you know, more economically than it can grow cattle. We, 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 we reckon that, that you a know, $100 donation to saving nature a year is enough to, to offset your average American's Carbon emissions. In in a piece that I wrote about um, uh, this uh, this lovely young woman who Greta Thunberg who who sailed across the Atlantic so that she wouldn't um, uh, you know burn uh, burn carbon as she flew in a plane. Uh, I joked unkindly. I think that she probably spent more uh, more more money on sea sickness pills than um, than it would have cost for her to plant trees. I know why she did it, and she's a wonderful inspiration. The reality is that it doesn't cost a lot to, to help organizations uh, like mine uh, plant trees in the right parts of the world uh, and, and soak up enough, uh, enough carbon to, uh, to offset the carbon emissions. I confess that I spend a lot more money on carbon I'm sorry, a lot more money on coffee each year than I do on offsetting carbon. And and I offset a lot of carbon. It, it's something we can do. And if we do it in a smart way, if we do it in the right places, we reconnect these landscapes in tropical, biodiverse countries, we can make an enormous difference towards you know, solving the extinction crisis. It's a matter of being smart. And I think... That's why we have to have good science, and that's why we have to listen to what the science has to tell us.
0: Well, we can go back to that distrust um, that's well earned for the me- from media. It seems to end at the disaster headline. So, in social media, if you use that as a gauge as to how people are feeling, it, it feels like they read the headlines and then comments come through that are like just kind of depressed, like "Wow, we're really." I'm disappointed in humanity, these kinds of things. And I have a new tool, thank you very much, to be able to, when these discussions come up, talk about that $100 a year uh, idea of offsetting that could do really good. And I want people to then want to know more information and I'll have a place to send them. And maybe that's what's happening here. That's why I'm so happy about having you on today. In an inconvenient truth, um, Al Gore talks about species going extinct
1: a thousand times faster than they should. Now, you might ask, from whom did he get that? And the answer is from me. Um, And and it's my work that shows how fast species are going extinct. Um, But, you know, that means that when journalists phone me up, they usually want me to talk about all all the depressing news. I don't want to do that because I want to talk about solutions. I mean, I'm sometimes asked, how on earth do you get up in the morning? Well, I get up in the morning because uh, there's so much to do. There are so many things we can do as individuals. There's so many things we can do as a society that are not outrageously expensive and not impossible. Um, You know, we have the mission of ensuring that our children and our grandchildren have the same biologically rich, planet that we inherited from our parents. Um, And I find that enormously exciting and invigorating. And um, and, and I'm privileged to be in in a position to to effect some very cost-effective solutions to that.
0: If (laughs) someone were to say, Stuart, we want to fund the work that you're doing. We're really interested in landscape connectivity wildlands connectivity and restoration um, and we want to give you a billion dollars what would a billion dollars do for the planet given what you have on your maps and the projects you have and the projects that are likely to come up as you continue to research what would a billion dollars do for the planet if a hundred could do so much
1: this is a very difficult question. It's the one question that keeps me awake at night. Um, and the reason why is if you look at the major conservation organizations, together, they have a budget that's probably something close to $2 billion a year. I think the challenge is not so much how much money you raise, but how well you spend Spend it. Mm. And so the challenge is, you know, could I spend a billion dollars? Yes. The challenge would be, could I spend a billion dollars wisely? And I think the answer to that is yes. But my solution would not be to have a large organization, you know, living in a very nice office building inside the Washington, D.C. Beltway or New York City or anywhere else, I bet the name a number of cities so that nobody thinks I'm picking on them. The challenge um, is how you get the the money to where it matters. How you know, how do you, you know, how do you get the right tooth-to-tail ratio? You don't want all the money in the tail, you want money in the teeth that are going to be biting into the problem. And I think what we've done well at Saving Nature. Is to engage um, a, a spectacular array of small, passionate, and very competent groups of people who are actually doing the uh, actually doing the work in work in the field. I mean, there's a parallel here to to, to development um, in in how you know how do you raise um, the the standard of living of poor people? You know, the difficulty is is not um, you know, how much money you you raise, but how you can spend it wisely. And I'm certain that's true of conservation. I think the challenge would be, um, you know, how to distribute that money into the places that matter. Um, and, and so were some billionaire to phone me up and say, Stuart, I'm about to write a check. The challenge for me would be to how to get that into the hands of Pat Wright doing work on lemurs in Madagascar, uh, Rudy Patra doing work on, uh, on, on orangutans in, in Sumatra, the Golden Land Tamarin Association in Brazil, um, the, the Hummingbird Conservancy in, um, in, in northern, uh, northern Colombia. You know, dozens and dozens of absolutely fantastic local groups of people like that, all doing a great job, all doing it on peanuts, and, 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 and getting the money to them in the way that they would make the difference. I think the other challenge, of course, is to, um, is to how you verify that. And, and we at Saving Nature put a huge amount of effort uh, into make sure that, that people can see our progress. Looking at satellite imagery, we're now doing a lot of drone imagery. Um, I, I think we need to be asking from the conservation community, you know, how do you show what you've done? How do you demonstrate success? And you know, do we make mistakes? Yes, um, we haven't always done uh, as good with some of our projects as we could have done. Uh, we've learned from our lessons, but we've been really pretty hard nosed about making sure that we're collecting the data so that we know the difference between success and failure.
0: It would be really interesting somewhere in the future to be able to partially demonstrate what you've done with those same satellites that are monitoring the fires, but there's I'm, a lot greener uh, in areas I'm that you've done work in. Yes,
1: I would encourage people to, to, to go to our website and look at our Brazil page. Uh, The oldest project that we've done uh, started out in Brazil, and that cattle pasture that I talked about that once isolated the Union Biological Reserve is now a forest. It's now a habitat corridor. And you can see before and after satellite photographs of of that restoration. Um, And that's the kind of aggressive transparency that characterizes what, what we do. I want our donors to know that they're not just uh, you know giving me or giving giving saving nature um a donation of $100 to to plant trees uh, I I want to be able to say hey go to this location on uh, on Google Google Earth and you'll see the forest coming back that you've you've helped support yes and and I think that's that's the challenge the challenge for conservation is is yes we need more money but we need to spend it well, um, and we need to give people a sense that, that they're achieving real progress. Nothing, absolutely nothing, gives me more pleasure in life uh, than doing what I did about three weeks ago in Brazil, which is to walk into a field and it's full of baby trees. Because I know uh, you know, in five years' time, there will be a, a forest of, of very young trees, and in 20 years' time, there will be a forest. Uh, and it's that kind of, you know, let's get out there, let's put the trees in the ground, let's take the, the satellite imagery, the drone imagery, and show show people what we're doing, show them that with camera traps that we're getting you know, ocelots and and guans and a whole variety of other mammals and birds moving through these corridors um, so that we're, we're achieving the success of, of preventing species
0: from extinction. I think what we're looking at is someone is going to develop just out of sheer need, and I think this would probably happen with some of the, for the billion dollars that you would receive if you had that call and got that check. Um, Something on par of the revolutionary work that FedEx did with the delivery uh, systems that they had, the logistics that they had to put together to do what they, and Amazon for their delivery and their ordering systems and uh, really big logistics systems. And you guys are starting because you've been doing the mapping and you know where hot spots are, you know, uh, in many, many, many cases where work is being or needs to be done And um, putting all of that stuff together really would just take an umbrella of sheer logistics. It would be really interesting if someday you found yourself or some group like yours found yourselves partners with people who uh, led that charge in a commercial way to maybe bring that brain trust to conservation.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very interesting analogy because... Um, it, it's it's a product um, that, that cannot be centralized. It's a product that has to be distributed. And I think the challenge for conservation is how do we get this massively distributed product of conservation action? Uh, you know, it cannot be done in a centralized place. I can't do all the conservation that I want to do sitting in my office. I've got to get it to... Uh, to a hundred thousand different places, often remote, um always almost always poor um, with with poor infrastructure. how do we get how do we get projects to uh, to people in these remote places? and and you know we have uh, we have fantastic people who who are part of our partners' organizations. Um, you know, women who collect seeds and develop nurseries entirely self-trained you know they've just figured out how to go and grab seeds and put them in the ground and get them to grow um and i enjoy talking with 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 these mostly women who who do that work um and and now earning much more money than their husbands who are often you know poor farmers do Um, but this sort of social empowerment but but really an extraordinary um effort of 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 getting people to do things that matter you know at the uh, you know at the at the place that matters that's you know it's no good being fedex if you can't get that package to the to the
0: person who needs it in his uh, you know in his remote house at the end of the street i think more exciting times are are coming uh, or or are upon us in in that area To give anybody ideas of um, some things that you would love to see more people being interested in as they're uh, choosing majors in college or even younger, Um, what does that mean if you want to speak to the logistics thing or anything else in in terms of the kind of help you would love to see um, from students? Or maybe you could share stories about what students you're working with now are doing um, that could be inspirational to younger folks coming up, trying to decide how going to spend their time um, helping.
1: Well, you know, in just seven hours time, I'm going to go into a classroom and I'm going to talk to uh, 40 students, a mixture of undergraduates and graduate students. Um, it's a conservation class. Um, those students are from all over the world. Increasing numbers of them are from China, uh, where, where we are being uh, ever, ever more engaged. Um, I, I think what we can tell them is, you know, there is hope. This is a, this is a problem that we have to solve, but we can solve. Um, and and I go to as much trouble as I can to give them a sense of empowerment, a sense that there are things that they can do. Uh, we need to be creative. Um, there's no there's no common one size fits all. Project in conservation that that what we might do in in a community in Madagascar is different from from what a colleague does you know on the uh, on the Maasai um, steppe of Tanzania or, or what we do in Sumatra or what we do in Assam there are different local solutions um, that those local solutions are often diverse and, and creative and and surprising. Uh, but the important thing is that it, that we try different things and we we see what works and uh, and we're prepared to um, to be experimental and, and above all to uh, to make sure that we're monitoring what's going on so we understand what works and what fails.
0: So dig in, come to meetings like yours. Um- Uh, Inform yourself. Go to places like savingnature.com and find out. I uh, was um, in grad school long, long ago um, doing uh, geographic information studies, environmental geography, back when Esri and the mapping people were all just getting started with their technology. And it was very clunky back then. But it was my fascination with maps. Um, And just the magic and wonder, I'm just looking at your coastal map of Brazil with the outline of the formerly forested uh, area. And I look at that, I now know, in a different way than most people do. I get a kick out of that more than the average person does. (laughs) So I was always really drawn to mapping. And then when we started doing the Sky Island work, uh, after I met one of my heroes, Dave, and actually got lucky enough to work with him uh, in the 90s on that very important project, one of the first of its kind, and there were maps everywhere, just You know, that's what turned me on. And we were drawing lines where all of those lines were just possibilities and opportunities. They didn't, the things inside those lines didn't exist yet. But we were imagining if the reconnections happened here and here, and we got this rancher to agree to this and the National Forest Service agreed to that. It was so, so exciting. That's a
1: wonderful project. That's that, I mean, I, I'm thrilled to be uh, to be part of this interview because I, I too have been inspired by by what Dave and the others have done. The, you know, I'm I'm not the only <laughs> I don't want anybody to think I'm the only people, person building corridors. Um, there's wonderful people building corridors, particularly in the in the Western US, the y to y the, the, the Yellowstone to Yukon Initiative. A lot of these efforts where people realise that we've got to stitch nature back together again. And that sense of that sense of going back on the offensive, of of, of saying yeah. we're not going to 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 put up with all the bad things that have happened. We're going to fight back, um, and suddenly realize there's a lot of things we can do, and we can work on collaborations in some cases with people that you would never think as as being likely partners. But you know, there's an awful lot of people in the world who, who care about what sort of a planet they leave to their children and grandchildren. I think we have a lot of allies out there.
0: That's yeah. one of the plans that we have for rewilding is, uh, is to stitch together all the projects that we can find all over the world that are in uh, and going and seeking volunteers so someone could then use that database of everything that we could possibly get together. It's extremely ambitious, but we seem to be a hub. And, as, and you're a hub, your organization is also a hub. People know to come to you, you have a network, and then in that case, it would be stitching all the networks together. So when you go to Saving Nature, it's, yep. it's this is a hub yep. of activity connected to several projects all around the world. And then when you get that, you get a big chunk of data. Then show people how they can get involved, give addresses, give names of volunteer coordinators, and um, how they can donate and exactly what the projects are about, because the the problem is everything is done in sound bites. Now, um, social media is a big detriment to people's understanding of any deep knowledge and, and and they get very confused. They're starting to realize how big the world really is. And when they start to dig, there's no end to where the organizations that they find the places that are asking for help that are doing great work. And I think organizing all of that information so it's digestible, understandable, and it's searchable. And, uh, would go a long way into getting people focused in the right areas. I, I think the important thing is that there's
1: hope. Um, and what we must do is, is to get people who um, want to make a difference to know that there's a lot of different ways in which they can make hope work.
0: So what was the first thing that you would like somebody to do when they come to your site today, when they hear this? When they're looking at Saving Nature, it's a pretty big site. It's got a lot of information. Um, how do they not become overwhelmed? What's the first place you'd like them to go,
1: <laughs> other than the donate page? Um, <laughs> what I'd like them to, what I'd like them, I, I have to say that because at some stage of the game, my executive director is going to be listening to this. The page that I'd like them to go to is the is, is the Brazil page, where we show the first corridor that we we built, an area that was once just a barren cattle pasture that is now a forest that reconnects what was an isolated nature reserve. That's 10 years worth of work, but it shows you what you can accomplish in 10 years. Um, and I'd like to do, uh, you know, I'd like to do a thousand projects like that in the next 10 years.
0: You are a very connected person. I met you at a conference. I imagine you, and you, you've admitted to traveling quite a bit um, and networking with a lot of people. How many how many more groups are there similar to yours out there? Maybe not as big or small or whatever, but how do you feel about the network of groups like yours that are really connecting to the ground, to projects on the ground? Is it a big number? Is it a small number? Is it too small?
1: Uh, it's, it's, it's a small number. We we have some, some really great partners. We We do a lot of work with, um, um, the small grants program of IUCN, the Netherlands, uh, because they give grants to to small conservation groups around the world. Uh, there's another group in Britain called the World Land Trust. Um, I think there's a, a number of, of of small groups, um, all of whom are committed to helping the other small groups, the other small projects that I've talked about that, that are populated by really great, Fantastic people who are doing such a good job to to save to save nature in their in their special parts of the world. Um, and there's there's a lot of great people out there, uh, and I hope people will, will will go to the effort and find out where they are. And going through us and the other organisations I've mentioned are, are a way to 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 come across those groups and, and to see how one can become involved.
0: Stuart, thank you so much for taking time. I am so excited. I hate to stop because I feel like we have so much more to talk about. And the only solution to that is that you must come back and and talk to us some more. Because this was really, really great. And and I love the message of hope. Thank you. It's there. You have have a great day. And thank you so much for inviting me onto this program. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. Be sure to visit rewilding.org to subscribe so you don't miss past and future episodes. And while you're there, please consider supporting Rewilding by making a donation or subscribing to the Rewilding Earth newsletter.